how they made sure the Borg were moist, because th that was something they commented on. That's a really weird transition. <laughs> she was moist. <laughs> That's all it gets from it. <laughs> I really hope that they hired a fan to help moisten and mist Picard. Could you imagine, Eric, if you you had that job and you had like a little mist bottle? It's like moisturize me. It's kind of like a kind of like a rubber on a porn scene. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be sitting there, like, just say, make it so. Say it, make it so once. I don't care what you pay me. I'll sit there and squirt <laughs> that bottle over your face. Uh, phrasing. Good day and welcome to Synaptic Misfire. My name is JP and I'm your host. Uh, joining me today is going to be Eric. How's it going, Eric? Good. How's it going, JP? Uh, I'm surviving and uh, my other co-host today is going to be Derek. Sub. Uh, sky, ceiling, bird, you know, many things are up. Anyway, what we're going to be doing here today is each week we're going to take a look at another relic from our pop culture past. And we want to see how it survived throughout the ages to become our current pop culture. And then taking off those road-colored glasses and see how it would, you know, stack up in today's culture climate. So this week, we decided our first uh, look is going to be at Star Trek First Contact. It's a movie we picked because we're all familiar with it, and it's one we wanted to see who is an actual Star Trek fan and who's just a fan of Star Trek. So when this came out, what were your guys' first reactions? Do you remember what it was like when you, you first went to the theaters and saw this movie? Yeah, um, I, I remember I was I was completely blown away. I think I was probably about 16 at the time and a huge, huge fan of Star Trek. Uh, I remember the first time I saw the trailers, I was like, it's got to come out now. I want to see it now. Oh, my God, I got to go see this. And yeah, like effects acting, I think overall, this is far, far and beyond the best next generation movie for sure. Was there any sort of um, particular key moment that really stuck with you throughout the all this time that you you remember above everything else uh the first the first time you see the board cube when it's approaching earth just how massive it looks and then those first couple shots that you see it take it just it looks spectacular because up until this point you didn't really see too much of like big space battles in, in star trek uh a lot of it was you know the ship would sort of, with a couple exceptions in... Well, yeah, because a lot of, for the most part, they were stuck with a TV show budget. And now that they actually have movie movie magic budgets, they can totally nail it with the special effects. I, I see how they did that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you see the fleet come in and ships flying all over the place and engage. It's not just like a, a static set of ships just sort of sitting there taking pot shots at each other no real like little maneuvering here and there it was like a full-on battlefield right and it was just it was amazing to see so derek what were your first impressions what do you remember most uh i remember living in a small town where you only had one movie show up at the movie theater so you took what you got and sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad looking forward to something like star trek something big budget definitely the thing you were kind of waiting for to see because it was that summer 
tentpole movie that you could kind of watch. Yeah, it's great to see something like Star Trek, you know, and uh, Generations was okay to me. Uh, and that was kind of my mindset going in was, yeah, Generations is okay. Let's see how they go now without the old crew in it. And it was awesome. It was probably, in my mind, and I'm going to say it, probably the best Star Trek movie overall in my mind uh, because it was smart mm -hmm. and it did it in a way like even with the other next generation films they take time to set up at the beginning and this movie 15 minutes in and we're already knee deep in a battle with the borg like they didn't really waste time setting things up they didn't have to because they had the advantage of yeah. star trek fans who'd already seen the best of both worlds part one and two and that's where everything is drawn from from this so there wasn't much to say there wasn't much they had to set up and it was great. You could jump into it right away. The special effects are happening. The battles there, it's already got you engaged. It's already got you without having to go through some of the boring, monotonous openings they had for some of the other movies. Well, they didn't have to go and do the whole setup. You didn't need your origin story. All that stuff was done ahead of time. And like you were saying before, it's even pulling off of uh, particular episodes as its basis going forward. So most Star Trek fans will understand that going into it. Yeah, and the, and the special effects were phenomenal. Uh, the battle really kicked it into high gear and you could see the standard that they were going to bring to this film. And that and, and it just had you excited from the get-go as opposed to Generations, which had kind of a, a slow build-up uh, a bit at the beginning, you know, having the old characters. And then, and then a second slow build-up having the new, uh, you know, next generation cast coming in. It, it took a while to set everything up and kind of understand what was going on, whereas, you know, you, you go in first contact and then... You know, the other two films after that, again, it was kind of a slow build up at the beginning. So this one was out of the four that the next generation did was the most exciting uh, by far. And it really set a high bar that afterwards just didn't get met. Uh, but I really, really loved seeing it. It was especially, you know, back in 1996. That was incredible. Like it was it was an awesome high production Star Trek film. And it felt that way. It felt like a film, unlike yeah, yeah. It didn't feel like a long episode. It felt like an actual movie. And another thing I love about this is they didn't have to find a reason or a way to shoehorn <laughs> Worf into it like the next two did. It, it was it was a very natural inclusion because at this point, the character had moved on to Deep Space Nine. So it would make sense why he's on a ship fighting the Borg, right? Because he's in command of the Defiant. The other two, he just sort of happens to be there and they're like, oh, hey, glad you're here for insert reason here and then it's just sort of passed mm -hmm. off quickly and then it just so i guess then for me what i remember most about this and is i i, I think i saw it in theaters but i definitely remember like my me and my mom we used to have movie nights where we would rent a whole shitload of movies so the seven movies for seven days for seven dollars right and then we sit down and we just you know binge watch them back before they had Netflix. And this uh, Star Trek was always one that we would always come back to just different series, different parts of it. We'd always come back to it. What I remember the most from this show was the music when they're getting ready to launch magic carpet ride. I, for some reason that really struck me and it was just so like empowering. And the other thing that, that really stuck with me is I really like the Star Treks where they kind of go back in time or they look at uh, a, today's kind of culture through that future lens and i really enjoy them trying to you know look at some of the stupid things that we do nowadays and go like well, why are you doing it that way i i really like that juxtaposition the nice thing about uh, magic carpet ride wasn't beastie boys yeah 
Sabotage! <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I like the Beastie Boys. Yeah, me too. Oh my. All right, so as you can see, you know, we have a lot of mixed memories and a lot of different takes on how this show really held up to us in the past. So sit back, relax, and prepare your synapses to misfire along with us as we watched Star Trek First Contact. And I figure what better way to preface the show that we're going to be reviewing than just to read off the back of the box. Because who better to tell you what the movie's about than the movie itself. All right, on the back of the box, it says... Captain Picard, Patrick Stewart of the Next Generation crew, and their most thrilling adventure yet, a sci-fi action event that stands proud and apart. They call themselves the Borg, a half-organic machine collective with a sole purpose to conquer and assimilate all races, led by their seductive and sadistic queen, Alice Kriege. The Borg are headed to Earth with a devious plan to alter history. Picard's last encounter with the Borg almost killed him. Now he wants vengeance, but how far is he willing to go to get it? Co-starring Alfre Woodard and James Cromwell, and bursting with spectacular special effects, Star Trek First Contact is one film that has it all! Engage. I've lost contact, sir. What? That actually brings up a couple of questions to me, just off the hop. When they're saying here... And we kind of commented on it before behind the scenes that the Borg are headed to Earth with a devious plan to alter history. So was this their intent all along to shoot that thing out and go into the past? That is probably what it was, uh, most likely on the fact that you see a single cube. If they wanted to invade Earth, uh, I think they would have sent an armada. But that's the thing that they were worried about is now they had already... Uh, taken the Starfleet captain, who's the head of, of of the fleet, and got into his head, and that gives them all sorts of intel. So they had been spending years not only you know preparing for the Dominion War mm -hmm. and stuff, but in a in a way they were also preparing for the Borg invasion because like the Defiant is shown in the battle uh, that we get to see at the beginning, the Defiant wasn't built for the purpose of the Dominion War, even though it's featured very heavily in it because of Deep Space Nine. Its beginning purpose was actually to help defeat the Borg. So they were starting to, you know, Starfleet, instead of being pacifistic-ish, was now actually starting to think in more military terms and in their design of their ships and their actions. So because of that, the Borg know this. They they know this by being in... in uh, Picard's head, you know, that, you know, if they have the kind of chance that they would, they would, you know, find ways to start striking back. And the Battle of Wolf 359 kind of woke up the whole entire uh, Alpha Quadrant to the, the threat of the Borg. So everybody started preparing, and that was going to mean a higher amount of resistance. So if you could go back and alter time, get rid of the Federation, have less unity between all these planets. Because in, in a sense, the, the Federation isn't like, you know, something like the Delta Quadrant. We don't see something like the Federation in the Delta Quadrant. There's many worlds, but they're all separate. They keep their cultures very separate. And to have a unified front to fight against, the Borg are just going to have a longer slog to go through. It means losing a lot of drones, a lot of time, a lot of energy. So instead, send one ship in alter the course of time, change the events of the Alpha Quadrant, and you change the course of the war. Yeah, so that was kind of clever. It makes you think, though, 
Why wouldn't they send a few cubes? I mean, they know how well a cube's going to do. But with all those minds linked together in a hive, I'm sure they came to the probable calculations that one was going to be enough. And they, they weren't incorrect. They did succeed getting to the point where they could make a jump back in time. And, yes. and that makes me curious too. Like Wolf 359, is that the the battle is that you were talking about there? That's the two-part episode that sort of struck all this, right? Yeah, that's the best of both worlds. The best of both worlds. Okay, so, and just to keep things clear, can you explain to me how they stopped Picard from being a Borg? They, did they basically just cut off the signal that he was sending out? I can't remember exactly how it, it played out. Yeah, they, they cut the signal between him and the cube. Eventually, Picard broke through without being in constant contact with the collective. So he basically still has a lot of that stuff inside him. It's just all the surface stuff got kind of plucked off. Well, no, he he gets he got all all the things removed from his body. Like he had it all surgically taken out, except for I think the only thing you can't take out is the one that's attached to your cerebral cortex. Because mm-hmm. that's um, supposed to kill them if they lose contact or something. I can't remember how that worked. Yeah, they basically discussed it when they tried to cut off Seven of Nine in in uh, Star Trek Voyager. Okay. They said, you know, we can remove most of this, but there are certain things we can't take out because if we do, she'll die. Because she's become so used to it. Now, I think he had more taken out because he wasn't a Borg for very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, um, they didn't but, go in in depth with his assimilation as much as they did with with uh, Sevens because she was assimilated as a child. So a lot of that stuff was built in as she grew and things adjusted and whatnot, whereas he was like, I'm pretty sure everything was cleared out of Picard. I don't think they ever reference in canon if there's anything left over in him. Yeah, they don't they don't ever actually say it. That's the the, the thing. So it's it's kind of hard to speculate, but for some reason he's still able to hear their voice when they're close enough. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of becomes questionable as like how much or how little is still within Picard because uh even with other Borg that have been separated, because there's a couple other episodes within uh Voyager where they kind of discuss uh a group of three people that are are separated from the Borg. But even with as much tech as they can take out, they're still connected to each other and they still hear each other's voices. Yeah, yeah. And and I was wondering how that worked with Picard, uh, because he can sort of hear them like like the, the Borg whisperer going on. And so that, that made me think there's got to be something still left in him. Otherwise, why would he hear them? He did absorb a good chunk of their collective consciousness, too. So he has a lot of information about them in his head. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger that they had of losing him. That's why they didn't want to try a full frontal assault, because realistically, if they banded enough people together, like... A, a small ship, like a, a, I shouldn't say small, the Borg don't build small, but one cube as opposed to say like a thousand cubes showing up. Well, a thousand cubes, that's a huge signature. You're going to probably hit it far off, right? Uh, and that gives time for the Alpha Quadrant to scramble. And then if they do that and they have Picard at the forefront and he debriefs them on their weaknesses and stuff. Like I said, it's just a longer drawn out fight. Many Borg die mm-hmm. uh, just trying to get to the goal of assimilating the Alpha Quadrant. So in this case, they don't have to deal with any of that if they can change the course of time. But in that sense, Picard is a major asset if he was given the time. But because it was short warning, Starfleet made the quick and fast decision. No, we don't want you involved in the battle because we don't know what's going to happen with you. Speaking yeah. of a warning, they actually stopped to assimilate a outpost or a, uh, that's when the Admiral gets a hold of Picard at the beginning. 
Yeah. And says, hey, we uh, lost contact with this one outpost. Uh, oh, they're like a vacuum cleaner. They can't help themselves. <laughs> Look over there, people. Let's just suck them up. Yeah. You know, it, it's like you're in a, a long trip, right? You're hungry. You want to make a quick stop. It doesn't take too long. You get what you need. You keep going. Build up the yeah. crew. Have some more cannon fodder. You know. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, Queen Borg. Look over there. It's a rest stop. We can take a pee break and you know assimilate some people at the same time. So that's good for setup. So now we have a, a good idea of you know what the Borg are like and and why and, and they're linking. Uh, connection to Picard, but the top of this movie is they've always been good for their epic intros and their credits, but by God, is it ever boring nowadays? You see something like, uh, what was it called? Deadpool, where they have a funny credits and something interesting, something happening, even just to visuals. Whereas this just had like a black background with words, like uh, uh, one name popping up and then disappearing. One name popping up and disappearing. Well, Star Trek's never been epic with their intros, right? If you see all their like their movies, it's pretty It's standard. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's it's not on that on the scale of the normal ones. It's very a downplayed intro. Like the the names sort of just appear into focus and and whatnot. But it's it just struck me as something that um has evolved as filmmakers have progressed and and they've realized that this is kind of a long segment so let's let's put some more things in for the viewers just to keep them on the hook so they're not you know falling asleep well there's two arguments to go with this Mm -hmm. um because the first is the film aspect like you're talking about people are wanting to kind of get into the film now more but we've come to a point uh even from Back in 1996, attention spans are a lot shorter. So people just want to get on with it. But the thing to keep in mind about 1996, and especially something like the Star Trek series, uh, or any any sci-fi back then, Star Wars, whatever, the thing was to feature the composer, to give them their due, as it were. Because yeah. you sort of notice the music in the background when you're watching a scene, but it it's, it's part of the entire experience. Whereas the opening where you get to have the flash credits, that's really the only chance that the composer gets to have their due, like their full due. They made that's their moment to shine. Exactly. They made the theme. You get to hear the theme. You get to hear their work. And, and so that's why they put so much effort into making a memorable theme. And so getting to hear something like Jerry Goldsmith's opening for that movie is a showcase of a great composer who had been doing the movies since pretty much the first one. Uh, and he's just, amazing like he always comes up with a good composition you can literally listen to any of the movie's themes that he's done and you can distinctively paste it to the movie that's with it's not just one theme it's like oh it's this one right it's he he was a bit different in that way from say like uh john williams for star wars mm-hmm. john williams did the star wars opening like that was and then that was it single movie <laughs> and don't get me wrong that that's awesome he you know it's a piece of music that catches you you're instantly involved you're listening to it but jerry goldsmith did it a little bit different and he made every movie have a unique opening soundtrack and so you can go that's first contact i'm listening to oh that's undiscovered country or whatever whatever movie he's done right and that keeps him employed well it keeps him employed (laughs) but but at the same time it shows his depth as a composer and that's not to say john william I'm, i'm never ever going to knock John Williams. Let's not get this off on the wrong foot here. He's, <laughs> he's an incredible uh, composer who's done his own vast list of work. It's ridiculous how much he's done. So it's not to say that he doesn't come up with anything original himself. He always puts a unique piece in each movie, one that stands out to us, like, you know, the 
duel of fates and stuff. But for for Jerry Goldsmith, he doesn't get that kind of time in the movie. He, he his music more blends with the movie to elevate the moment, but not stand out in the moment. Mm. And it's really only the opening intro that gives him that chance, which is nice that they they take the consideration to give him that moment to make that theme something that resonates with you and makes you remember the movie. And this is also back from a day when the music was created to cater to the scene rather than picking a song that's, you know, memorable and people know and like, like Sabotage, and then just throwing it into a scene and then, you know, trying to make it work. Well, that even adds to a few points, right? Like, look at movies and TV shows today compared to back then. Back then, they they had their own, own sound, sort of as what uh, Derek was saying, you know, you hear that sound, well, that's first contact. And even intros, like, like that's that's a rarity nowadays where you know you have say a sitcom intro or a movie intro like it used to be like the build-up you had your little intro scene and, and then you had you know your title sequence music and then you have your your movie that's mm-hmm. not that's not really the norm anymore no no it was the norm back then and yeah like i'm not knocking them for doing it back then it's just today i don't think the audience would have the attention span to watch something like that but it did bring something up that um, Derek has in his notes where he was talking about the directors and the directorial choices and how it kind of landed on Frakes. Did you want to elaborate a little bit on that for me? Well, they had uh, huge aspirations at the beginning, I guess, because they, they viewed this movie kind of in two ways with the initial script. Uh, the first one is it's kind of a diehard scenario. Um, lots of trapped. vent, lots of vent crawling. Well, well there, there's <laughs> vent crawling if you want to go with that kind of comparison. But the big <laughs> thing was, is you're trapped on the ship and the enemy is there and really you're losing ground to them. So you got to kind of do hit and move tactics. Uh, so diehard kind of came into their minds. So, uh, but they also had that theme with the Borg that they're kind of like aliens. You know, they're going to come and they're going to infect you and you're going to have chest bursters and all that kind of stuff. Which is kind of funny because they also realistically show you that that's what happens within this movie <laughs> uh, for the first time seeing an assimilation because this is the first movie where you get to see an assimilation. That's right. You know, before they kind of they kind of had the tubes go into the neck and the person would slightly change color and that was the best special effect they could do for TV. <laughs> but this time they inject you into the neck and then you see kind of the technology rolling under the skin and then it pops out right and it's just it's much more horrifying they went for this is probably the closest they've done in star trek to something that's base horror so of course they think about aliens and then they think ridley scott john mctiernan and that's exactly the direction they went first they offered it to ridley scott and then they offered it to john mctiernan and neither of them were able to do it because they had either other projects or they just you know weren't as interested as they could be into it so it eventually fell to jonathan frakes because the producers felt that uh jonathan he'd already directed some episodes for star trek the next generation and they felt he would at least do it justice in the sense that he was a star trek um fan in the sense that he would do it like a fan he would he would pay respect to everything that had come before mm-hmm. he would pay respect to the star trek franchise and then as frakes's homework uh because he he kind of knew what the producers wanted out of the movie he went and watched die hard and aliens and a couple other movies to kind of get the vibe of what they're trying to do like get that semi-horror element and get that you know franticness going and we're on a clock there's yeah. kind of a, a time to save our known universe our known galaxy the way it is so we have to you know there's that urgency yeah constant urgency to get it done and get things going and and make sure everybody's safe and i i mean 
honestly, he did a great job because you're kind of sitting on the edge of your seat a good chunk of the time going, oh my God, what's going to happen? And there's a couple of spots in there where you definitely see that Aliens vibe and you see that that, um, diehard inspiration for the movie. And it's not a bad thing. It's just something that I didn't notice or even think about it until I saw your note and then connected those directors to the script. I'm like, oh, okay, now it all makes sense. I see what they were doing. I see what they were going for. And then one thing to add to something that you mentioned, Derek, about how they added that bit to the Borgs, to the Borg, sorry, how they could uh, inject the people with the nanites. That was a hell of a thing to add to an already scary enemy, right? Like, like the thought of the Borg themselves is, is intimidating. It's, it's scary. It's, it's uh freaky to even They're like be. space zombies well it's essentially well, yeah right but the fact that now they can they don't just kidnap you take you to their ship and assimilate you on mass is they just need to touch you and that added that little extra bit of fear to push them right over the edge to mm-hmm. and they have the instead of i guess in the series the most of the stuff was on the surface and it was on the outside of them and i think i had seen somewhere where they wanted to have uh, to show that the borg stuff coming more from the inside out and there's one really good scene where you see like the two little tubes go in someone's neck and then this black stuff go underneath their skin it's a really cool effect well and just the makeup work and that's something we kind of have to give kudos now to to old style makeup artists is you know they really uh set a precedent when they can make you make it look like it's coming from underneath your skin the technology is coming out of you mm-hmm. and we and we got close-up shots of that too they weren't even scared to do that they were they weren't scared to do a close-up shot because the makeup was that damn good well it was yeah. great because beforehand like everything looked like it was attached to the body right it was all super glue yeah it was all uh, added uh, equipment to to make them look like cyborgs to like to make them look like and orcs. black spandex and lots of black yeah, spandex. <laughs> and yeah big cod pieces and whatever <laughs> but but this it's now all the borg stuff like the the face pieces the arm pieces everything looks like it's part of the body it's not just added on it's weaved in with the organics and that was a <laughs> it's a hell of a visual he said cod piece. <laughs> There's a nice large cod piece on them. Well, that's because they're units, not uh, people. Uh, that, uh, a little off topic, but you say cod piece and Borg, and the first thing that pops into mind is lore from the episode Descent. So that, um, that kind of brings us to the beginning of the show then, where we started off on a really interesting note in kind of like a dream sequence, and we get uh, uh, some shots of the Borg ship. And, oh, my God, right off the top, I, I can't stand eyeball stuff people touching their eyes or or eye drops even they drive me nuts and then they put a freaking drill and yeah. they touch the corona of their you, eye. you see it push in that was that yeah. was that was very cringeworthy for me and that was i'm sure the intent and it paid uh-huh. off dividends because i was like yeah bunch of girls it was not oh, even real i know but it doesn't matter ah. <laughs> no but that's that's interesting that you say that because uh we were having a conversation the other day about simple effects and sometimes something very simple can do a lot to a person right and it did um, it set me up for the rest of the movie on kind of on edge and and ooh, uneasy feeling for what's going to be happening next yeah it was a perfect descriptor it was perfect to show this is the stuff to expect from this movie. This mm-hmm. isn't your average episode of Star yeah. Trek. This is 
gonna get a little messed up well and see for for me it wasn't even that moment like you guys talk about that me my my worst fear out of all that dream sequence was when he you think he's out of the dream and of course yeah i love that they did the double dream sequence because that's true to real life right oh i woke up everything seems rather you know uh rather real and you know i'm i'm kind of in a lucid dream at this point but you don't know that it seems real and i'm safe and i get up and i go and i wash my face and then i look and something's kind of moving under my cheek and pops right out like that bothered me that was the part where i was like oh okay now i'm on edge because i don't like the idea of something crawling around inside of me and popping out of my freaking face when i'm looking in the mirror that was that was definitely a good follow-up to the to the eye thing that just that was a real really good visual one-two punch. And that kind of goes to speak to the magic of what I think made this movie something special is they were still in that era where uh, CGI effects are getting better. They're starting to use them more. They're getting cheaper, but there's, still using a lot of practical effects and it's that combination of using the two of them and knowing where to use it and where to use the the real life stuff and where to use the cgi that really makes the movie more impactful like you say with the borg and such well it really is less is more right like just Mm -hmm. those two little things it right it it sets you off unlike say the face stretching scene in Star Trek Insurrection where the Admiral gets his face stretched. I thought that just looked hokey. <laughs> it looked yeah. bad. But yeah, it's like somebody took photo mode or or some type of uh video kind of thing and just kind of, and just literally just <laughs> took the mouth and kind of just went stretch. Yeah. And you're like, that's it? That's all the effort you put into it? That's kind of lame. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have that app on my phone where you could just take a picture of yourself and stretch it out. I think our phones could actually do a better job than what they did there. We could probably film it on our phones, do the special effects as we're as we're filming it, and it would still turn out better. <laughs> what kind of uh, uh, movie magic moments in this were were something that stuck out to you guys? Um, I think well, with stuff like that, with the eyes and um, and all of the anything that had to do with the assimilation stuff that they were doing, the Borg in general looked really, really cool. Um, I thought it was kind of weird that they own the color green in this movie and it sort of becomes their trademark from, from here on out. I, I sort of liked the, you know, the dead palette colors that they were, the dull palette colors that they were using beforehand in the series, like the, mm-hmm. the, the grays, the, the dark, the whites, the contrast, right? Like it just was, yeah. the Borg didn't strike me as a, it was just um, bland, right? And that sort of went with the cold feeling of them in general. But I understand major motion picture, you want to add color, you want to get things to pop. It's got to be visually appealing. And I think adding green to that doesn't throw it off and just gives that more of a sickly feel to it, which yeah. I think was okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it wasn't anything where I was like, oh my God, guys, like in the series, it was grays and blacks and whites and you like need to go back <sighs> to that. I don't know. It kind of it kind of sounds like you. kind of sounds like you when you talk oh, about things. I'm going on Twitter not right a, now. Not aesthetically <laughs> You kind of just go off it's not the color i want yeah i know i've heard it before god <laughs> i i got a thing about looks and designs i can't help myself which is interesting uh that you say that because we you and i have had this discussion about the enterprise e a lot it is awesome evolution from what uh and, and a contrast to what the enterprise d was yes because we went from having Enterprise D, which looks like the kind of ship you'd have on a long voyage for being a 
place where people are going to live. It's going to be a community, essentially, to something way more streamlined and definitely speaks of, you know, this thing's built to fight. It definitely, just by first look, you can tell it's something with a little more teeth. Whereas the Enterprise D was the perfect image for what the Federation was at the time. Uh, They had grown complacent. And even Picard says this with the first introduction to the board, which is a pretty good tie into this, I guess, they had grown complacent. Uh, they, yeah, they, yeah. they had had so many years of peace, everything was going fine. And the Galaxy class was a perfect example of it. And and there's a lot of things they did that made sense for what they were trying to get across, but it was ill-equipped for, say, a Dominion War, uh, uh, struggle with the uh, with the Borg, uh, any big confrontations, the Borg, the Enterprise D was would be lacking. Yeah, and this kind of segues into answering your question, JP, because for me, if I were to t- talk about a special effect that I found very effective within the movie, it would be the fact that not only did we get to see the inside of uh, Enterprise at E and you know a very upgraded looking movie set Star Trek movie set because it was designed only for the movies uh, so they had a much higher quality to the grade of what the hallways look like and the bridge and all that kind of stuff but the exterior of the Enterprise E this is one of the first if only I can really think of where they spend time on the outside of the ship and yes. they do a set piece there with the uh, with the deflector dish which I've I thought was awesome. Yeah, I love it. And I, and I also thought the special effect was awesome of them walking on on the outside because where today we would use a CGI ship and just kind of transpose CGI characters onto it to make it, you know, a nice solid picture. Mm-hmm. It was actually a model. And then they transposed the filmed actors walking on the surface. And it's such a clean shot. And you really would be hard pressed to tell that it, it is a model because they made the scale so well. And even up close, it looked like you know a real ship to that scale even though it's like 175th or whatever it was uh scale size to a a real size version of the enterprise e well correct me if i'm wrong here uh but this is the last time they use a model for the movies is it not i don't know i would have to look further into something like the movies past it but like they were using cgi for the battle sequence yes so that wasn't any real model ships because they didn't want to have the problem they had in uh like even deep space nine they didn't do it all cgi they had a lot of ships on (laughs) wires and then of course they're thinking about how do we make these things cross each other without you know screwing it up (laughs) Uh, so so it, it gets a bit cumbersome for that because unlike star trek uh, or Star Wars ships, I should say. Uh, a lot of those were built, they could be built smaller because they were smaller fighters and they could rotate them easier because there was less weight and stuff. And and they have a certain uh, line to them that makes it easier for them to kind of rotate and stuff. Whereas Star Trek vessels are built kind of weird and they have really weird angles to their ships. So attaching wires and trying to get it to do a flip or a barrel roll is kind of really hard to do with the model without you know seeing sway or something go wrong with it. So for the battle sequence, they did that in CGI. But yeah, I think it's one of the, the last times they used a lot of model work to see the outside of the ship. It just seems visually like, especially uh, bits where you see it orbiting Earth or or whatnot, it, it just seems completely different visually from the movies afterwards. It sort of has that more realistic look to it. Well, they spent a lot of time actually trying to get that shot because uh, the first few times they did it, you could kind of tell it was a model because they were so zoomed in on the outside of the hull. Mm-hmm. So they had to actually like polish it 
and then they had to polish it again. They had to use finer and finer grain of uh, sandpaper to kind of just get that sheen and polish to make it look like the metal was to scale bigger than the people that were on top of it. So that that model shot was actually very hard for them to pull off, but I think they pulled it off brilliantly as a special effect. Oh, it was was a great scene. It looked looked awesome. And to go back to the the battle sequence one more time with Mm -hmm. the Borg cube and the Federation fleet. Uh, One poor ship at the end, the the, the Borg cube blows off. You see the Enterprise veer off on the right. And then you see a ship veer off on the left and gets caught up in the explosion and just... (laughs) It's like, oh, buddy, you almost made it. Well, that's what happens when you don't signal. I only had a problem with <laughs> I only had a problem with the the gravity boots. They I don't think they did them well. They only had that initial zoop as they stuck and then after that they just kind of walked like they were on the moon. You want something interesting about those boots? Hmm. Those boots are actually heavily weighted. So when you see them do those steps, they're actually trying to lift boots that had like 20 pound weights in them. <laughs> so if they look a little odd walking, it's because they had real weighted boots and their their legs were getting tired and they complained about that for quite a while. They should have just put magnets in them then and actually had them walk on a magnet floor. Fuck off! Oh yeah, that's how it works. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah! That's how, that's how the science behind it works. Method acting. Oh, please. Yeah, there's lots of method acting in a science fiction film. Okay. Of course, you gotta fly a starship to know how a starship flies. Yeah, I actually went and got myself infected by the Borg so I knew how it felt. <laughs> so I could do the role right. Like, go away. I don't go know, away. but I think she lied to you. She was not a member of the Borg. But she was a queen. And she definitely had something. <laughs> She's packing a phaser. Hey, she had her own nanites in the forms of a crab-like creature. <laughs> oh. Hey, you know what? Sometimes you just can't help yourself because resistance is futile. Giggity goo. <laughs> well, it's called it's called booze. That's Something else I've seen with this one here is there's a lot of cameos and recalls to uh, uh, other characters throughout the uh, the movie. Um, Eric, you had noticed some stuff with the the med bay. Yeah, they uh, there's Star Trek has always been really good about this. Is uh, well in the last, I mean from TNG on, is they had uh, background characters, and sometimes those background characters would become full fledged characters, like they did with Chief O'Brien. Uh, uh, like there's Nurse Nurse Ogawa. I probably said that wrong because I totally forgot her name for like two seconds there when I was trying to <laughs> well, prove a point. And she's not even she's not even a nurse at this point in the movie either. She's a doctor now. Is she? Yeah, she became Dr. Ogawa, uh, or at least according to the canon, that's what it says. And and I don't disbelieve it. I mean, you spend that long on the ship, you think, think you'd move from nurse to doctor. Mm-hmm. But there was, uh, there was a few other crew members that you'd see in the background or, or like people would be talking to who you'd, you'd seen in previous episodes. Um, I noticed well, this in Generations, actually, uh, mm-hmm. when they go to evacuate the star drive. You see a lot of uh, bit characters that you'd seen throughout the series going through Jeffrey's tubes, going through the halls. And I thought that was really cool. Like, you know, you'd seen these people. They're part of the ship. They're not just, it's not just, no, it's like just extras. The, yeah, it's not just the seven main characters and then a bunch of random faces. Like you'd yeah. usually see the same person sitting at uh, the con position. You'd usually seen the same person at tactical or in, in, the med bay they're background characters but they're there 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 shows you that it's not just everybody's not interchangeable and it's even consistency across the different um versions of star trek because this is the first time we see that um uh 
doctor program in a next generation episode yes where he's the he's the guy from inner space with uh the gold tooth yeah uh, robert picardo uh, this is the first mm. time that they actually had, i mean you sort of you see it on voyager and you kind of just okay well this is a thing they put on their ships now but to actually mm. see it pop up in other parts of the franchise just sort of helps weave the universe together a little bit more yeah and i i love how they do that yeah and then there was also that excited puppy guy uh when they were talking to zephram cockram on the ground and he's got this warp coil that he's you know wringing his hands like he's getting off on it oh, yeah the it's, uh, broccoli yeah <laughs> mr broccoli, broccoli. <laughs> Uh, he's another example of one of those bit characters only meant for like an episode or something like that. And then they just keep kept bringing him back because he proved to be a popular character. And I always, I really, I really liked Barkley. Well, honestly, how would you not like Dwight Schultz? Like he is an amazing character actor. Uh, we all know this from anybody who's old enough to remember the (laughs) 18. Uh, you know, being Murdoch, he was a hell of a character actor. He was really a good draw for that show. He wasn't the main draw because nope. obviously Mr. T had higher popularity. Uh, pity the fool. But, but it also speaks to the lev- level that uh, he was able to give Mr. T enough to do to elevate that character and make him fun because his biggest bitch, his biggest gripe was sitting there chewing out Murdoch, getting mad at Murdoch, <laughs> getting mad that Murdoch put him in a plane. You crazy ass fool. Like he would just always rip on him. And even though he didn't get the popularity out of it, like Mr. T did, um, definitely Dwight Schultz elevated Mr. T's character. And and he played a, an amazing character actor. If you go back and watch him in it, I mean, that guy's all over the place. He's You can tell he's a, a full-fledged theater actor who's done lots of improv because he throws a lot of those elements in, I'm sure, to the character of Murdoch. And then it's the same for Barkley. And it's such an interesting uh, difference between the two characters. Uh, and and it's even interesting to see how Barkley sees himself versus how he is yes. because you know you get to see him in a holodeck program and he's confident and he speaks with an authority and he keeps his shoulders back and he stands up straight and then he gets around people and he kind of starts to stamp st- stammering and and, uh, and it's kind of funny and- it's characters like him and and Chief O'Brien who were meant as background characters or, or bit characters to begin with to, to watch them evolve. Like even O'Brien's wife, like Keiko, like they, they, they gave a bit character a family. What, how many shows really do stuff like that? And Star Trek has always been good at fostering this universe, this connective universe. And you know, it's, it's a, it's like the ship is a living, breathing organism, right? Yeah. Well, Barkley had a really good character arc I found and, and he really evolved as, as a character, just even in the one episode and compared to now. And I think that made him really relatable to a lot of Star Trek fans, especially at the time, because a lot of us probably felt a lot like Barkley. Don't get me wrong. Like I had loved to be like oh i'd be so and so if i was in star trek i'd mm-hmm. be barkley barkley is literally <laughs> me if i was in that situation it really showed what dwight schultz could definitely bring and elevate a character to because like you said it was supposed to be just a one-off and it came off so brilliantly that they wrote episodes around things like his hollow addiction and around his psychological issues constantly even through star trek voyager and then once again, you know, we have him kind of just fumbling himself all over the place as soon as he meets Zephyrin Cochran. Oh, that's that's how I am when I meet famous people. That's how I was <laughs> when I met Michael Dorn. 
I forgot how to use the English language. <laughs> well, that's because you're supposed to be speaking Klingon when you meet him. Klingon, damn it. Well, see, I'll know better for next time. Yeah, and then he'll probably look at you and go, oh, yeah, you're one of them. <laughs> yeah, guess I shouldn't have said hi after all. <laughs> so what are some of the weird little things about this show that, that stuck out to you guys that made you go, why, why, what was the thought process behind those choices? Um, people using other people's consoles drove me nuts. It, I, <laughs> I, you know what? I didn't really notice this for like, what, 20 years <laughs> that the movie's been out for 20 plus years. I've watched it. God, I don't know how many times I've watched it. And when we watched it for this, I'm sitting there and you'll see someone like a poor guy at Tactical. As soon as Worf comes on the bridge. Yeah, we need help at Tactical. No, you don't. You kick the poor Tactical officer and then he just disappeared for half the freaking movie. Yeah, like Worf just walks up. Move, bitch. <laughs> Get out the way. Get out the way, bitch. Get out the way. Like a guy can't like. Like, that's his job. He's on the bridge of the flagship of the Federation. He's got to be proud. I am the tactical officer of the USS Enterprise. Some guy who used to work there came back for a couple days and you'd got just shafted. So, well, in a sense, he can't really resist because it's a superior officer. But well, then, yeah. you, then you'd, miss, you'd miss the whole setup of Frakes going up a kind of mocking wharf like he usually does. You remember how to fire phasers? <laughs> oh, no. I I, I mean, you got to fit Worf in there somewhere. He's going to get put back to where, you know, people know him in, in that setting. But you got to think of that poor officer. And then you see him finally later uh, at the op station, which is good because you didn't see him again for the longest time. And I thought someone's going to have to do a wellness check on the poor guy. But you, <laughs> see, you see him at ops. And once again, instead of, you know, Cap Picard going, officer, whatever your name is. Hail the away team. Picard walks up to the console, sticks his arm in front of Buddy, and bops the buttons, and and does it all himself. It's like that's like somebody reaching across the passenger of a vehicle, reaching over and grabbing the fucking steering wheel on you. God damn, but, that pisses me off. But but if you if you look, it happens multiple times. Riker uh -huh. does it. Picard does it. Uh, Lieutenant Hawk does it. And not only does he walk up to someone else's console but he's looking at it upside down and just bopping whatever while guy is sitting at the console staring at him like dude just well i don't think i don't think you can stop captain picard but it is kind of you know well, no. offhandish that patrick stewart is going up and he's like yeah you don't know what you're doing let me do it <laughs> that's a, that's another point where it's like man you replaced me with the Klingon. now you don't think i know how to use the comm system he's gonna just <laughs> he's gonna get himself assimilated just because he doesn't give a shit anymore some of the things that really struck me with this is oh goddamn time travel <sighs> that's always such a sticky pain in the ass but be careful you also said at the beginning that you thought that you know you like shows that have time travel in it i don't mind it i like the time travel aspect but it's such a cheap macguffin that you you throw into a movie and they, they do it a lot in star trek so maybe i'm maybe i'm blowing smoke up my own ass well i i, I understand what you're trying to say with the whole entire macguffin part uh Usually, I find, yes, it is a MacGuffin or a cheap way to do an episode because then you can just kind of do whatever you want and you have free reign. Mm -hmm. uh, I would argue against you on this one, though, because this is the premise of the movie mm -hmm. and it is the major tie-in of their race against time. That was something, too, that my my thoughts on that have changed a little bit now that I've actually read the back of the box. And we've kind of come to that conclusion that this was their intent 
from the get-go. Because before I'm thinking, okay, you have this technology, you're the Borg, you like to replicate things and assimilate things. So why are you not going back in time to every home planet of every species and just taking them over? Again, it just came down to that tactical decision of, well, now we can't go against this quadrant really because they're they're going to be more prepared and it's going to be a, a bigger loss to us and to try to move that many resources because again that cube came all the way from the delta quadrant yeah but had they gone back in time back in the delta quadrant and then just puttered over there when like no other spacefaring races are out there you know like but they but they didn't really have to do that because there was no resistance up to that point mm. so yeah I, I get what you mean it's it's weird because then it's like well why don't we do this tactic all the time but probably this being the first off time that they did it and they still failed is probably why they didn't continue to try doing the same thing anymore because you know okay this isn't gonna work <laughs> well there's so many there's so many random factors to time travel so you can't really sit there and go will this be successful you won't know until the after effect and even then after the after effect how will you, you know? won't know because there's no time probabilities to tell you right well exactly like i was thinking about that earlier too right um what if they had gone back in time in the delta quadrant and then putted their way over to earth they wouldn't have had any federation resistance or any really re real resistance in general but if they'd gone back in time they could have done something to alter their own history it's probably one of those things where they just viewed mm. it as the safest quote, safest uh, course of action and very direct. Just, you know, it's straight to the point. We're going to do this. Uh, it's also like, it's also like how I was thinking, why didn't they go back to caveman days? <laughs> just, you know, assimilate some cavemen. I mean, that would be, could you imagine? <laughs> oh this? my God, yeah. caveman Borg. That would be freaking hilarious. But, well, except it doesn't add to their biological and technological distinctiveness. They have nothing to gain from it. They they lose their they lose their enemy. Um, but but I mean it's it's all a tactical ploy in the begin with, right? Because if they assimilated uh, Earth at that point in time, there's no real technological gain for them. But they also wipe out the Federation. Not not just you know Starfleet, but the whole freaking Federation's gone. Um, mm -hmm. uh, also, if you you go back to say caveman days or the Renaissance or whatever. And they then, you know, they got to just go down there and assimilate people one by one or whatever, right? They go back to the day before first contact. They know where the silo is for the Phoenix. They blow up that silo, kill uh, Cochrane, whatever they do. That's the point where now, no matter how long it takes you to assimilate people or whatever in issue you may run across, uh, Starfleet and the Federation will never exist. Because once that that one point, that one thing has been destroyed, that's it. That That is your permanent change. And it's probably well, now, the here, easiest uh, way to go about it. Now, here's the, here's the argument, the counter argument to that as well, because even though I'm, I'm kind of advocating somewhat to a point for the time travel i can also advocate in one direction against it and uh the big thing to me is i this is the thing that doesn't make sense to me why go back to a period where uh the technological difference really isn't much better than cavemen anyway yeah because the period they invade they're not at a technological height point either and yet they still choose to uh, assimilate the earth in that time period they're not gaining anything by it at that point because they were so low into technology that even the vulcans were going to pass them over yeah so that that's kind of interesting to me that you know we made that joke about going back and assimilating the cavemen <laughs> and they essentially kind of did that anyway <laughs> yeah the yeah. pre-spacefaring race well, at well, that point, it's just... Uh, after a war, they're pretty much a dystopian culture. You know, there's nothing to them. They they, they said they 
fought to get the scraps to rebuild a missile mm-hmm. into a spaceship. You know, like they weren't finding technology easy. No. You know, they, they, they look like they were living out of huts, essentially. Well, I think at so, that point, it's more along the lines of they're going back for the raw materials, the people, the the numbers, right? To the build up. Yeah, that's essentially it. And then they've already, um, they've already gotten all the information they need out of Lacutus. Well, see, that's also the thing, too. Uh, I kind of just thought of that. If they assimilated Earth when, you know, the day before first contact, they would have changed history. So that means there would have been no Enterprise D to get flung into the Delta Quadrant or wherever it was where they made the first contact with the Borg and made the Borg aware of them. So does that... Mm-hmm. That wouldn't that wouldn't matter, though. See, that, they, that's they where would the have, time... They would have come for them eventually, right? Yeah, it's, it's where the time-space uh, paradox kind of comes into play at that point. Yeah. Because... When you when you've moved the ship all the way to Earth and then you do the time travel, you've now just created a different time space paradox. So even though the Borg in the Delta Quadrant wouldn't know about the Borg on Earth at first, after you simulate the entire planet and you you know put your technology out there, they could probably send out the comm signal to the Delta Quadrant. Well, because that's what they were doing on that little scene for the ship that you were talking about. <laughs> they were building an array to send a signal to the Borg Collective. Yeah. yeah. So it wouldn't it wouldn't matter in the grand scheme of things. They would they would probably be like twenty years into their simulation and have already made contact with the Delta Quadrant that yeah, we've captured uh sector zero zero one. Yeah. It's one of those things where you could really just nitpick the whole situation, right? Because that's wow. it's always the thing with time travel. Is it, 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 those are fun. They can be really fun movies and fun episodes or something like that. But if you really sit there and p- uh, pick it apart, it, you, you just take the fun out of it and you ruin it. Yeah, well... Sometimes it has to happen. Oh, I mean, sometimes you can't help but do it because it's done so poorly. But see, like, it wasn't even just the time travel. There were so many little things about this movie that kind of irked me. Is the prime directive, right? Mm. They're always about the prime directive, a primitive culture. They don't want to interfere with them because they don't want to change the outgoing or the the, the course of their history. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they're in their own history. So not only are they violating violating their own prime directive, but they're also fucking with the past by telling um, Cockrum about what he's going to achieve and what he's going to be. Like, that that's an unbearable amount of pressure to put on somebody. Well, yeah, but the hard part with that is is when you're on that kind of time crunch when you know you've got less than 24 hours to make this happen how do you do it subtly oh let's take the subtle approach and you know slowly influence him or you know infiltrate his work crew and help him get this thing repaired no they the da- the ship's already taken damage that's their first major concern mm-hmm. and then they know that they can help rebuild it because they probably have you know the specs on on the system in a computer, you could download it to a data pad and go, okay, this is how he built it back in the day. Cause you know, we still have it in the Smithsonian and we still know how the technology was built. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all on record. We can help him do it faster. We just don't have the time to sit here and talk with him about it. And especially dealing with the type of character Cockrum was, uh, he, when he was approached is in the bar drinking pretty much half cut dancing to really loud, <laughs> obnoxious. <laughs> so how do you approach him? How do you talk to him? Like Deanna tried, she tried the soft approach as a counselor and got nowhere because he's a very difficult individual. Riker's facials through that whole scene. Gold. <laughs> he was just loving it. Freaking hilarious. <laughs> at, at, at first, when, when Cochran throws that uh, bottle at him mm-hmm. and calls him a jerk, he just sort of 
plops down that plug like excuse me <laughs> when he when he um unplugged the music yeah and then when you see his reaction with uh deanna and then riker's now how he's having fun with that he's enjoying this very very much and he gets that <laughs> that sort of sly riker smile creep across his face yeah he totally does there's also the the line even which deanna says in it we don't have the time we don't have talk time about time for time that's right and and she's quite literally, you know, uh, realistically evaluating the situation as a ship's counselor. It's like, we're at a point now where we either tell him or we're we're not going to make this happen. So it's kind of that thing. I understand what you're saying. Like, yeah, they're, they're growing heavily against the prime directive. But mm-hmm. if they don't save the future of man and Starfleet, prime directive is going to mean nothing anyway. See, I just so wish they- I just wish they would have had a small little tie up about that kind of stuff at the very end like when they go back to normal time did they even go back to normal time at the end of this okay i don't even remember that part holy because because the events with the ship mm-hmm. and and the borg and stuff technically didn't affect anything on the surface their their battle up in space was you know unheard of they didn't detect the enterprise the the vulcans when they came up they were only following the warp signature mm-hmm. and so essentially everything went as it should from that point there were some deaths in the flight crew. I wonder what kind of effect on history that really would have had. Yeah, and like the butterfly effect, right? Like you step on a butterfly and everything changes. Yeah, I mean, obviously not too much. I mean, you don't like know. Maybe, I mean, maybe they have better, more efficient engines. Like, oh, what happened to our engines? I don't know. All of a sudden, we're at like one hundred and five percent capacity. No, I, I think I think they I think they were careful enough to build it to spec. And then and answer the question for Eric about, you know, crew members dying. There is, they've talked about it in other episodes where they've done time travel for Star Trek and even people that have theorized it. There are certain people's deaths that actually would not make a blip in history. Yes. Like mine. So there dark. is actually a certain... <laughs> that got there's dark. A certain, yeah. Well, yeah, dark. Uh, but there is a certain level that you can do for damage to the past and you probably wouldn't affect the future mm-hmm. because it would be a bunch of nobodies, essentially, like people that just, they, they, they were working for money, right? Yeah. And they were probably being directed by Cochrane every step of the way. So it could have been anybody yeah. that did it. They had no real relevance. Like like Lily, essentially she was a co-pilot, but she's never mentioned in the history books. Her oh. name didn't come up. Nobody went, oh, you're Lily, the one that flew with him. Nobody said that, right? So that makes you think. I mean, that's the whole time travel thing, right? They were always intended to go back in time. Mm, yeah. Because... Well, and that's the paradox. Yeah, exactly. Because none of that was mentioned, right? Lily was never brought up. And who says the saying that that uh, uh, Riker gives to uh, <laughs> yeah. Cochrane isn't the one that isn't where he aped it from, right? He's like, who said that rhetorical nonsense? You yeah, know, you did. So, so Riker Riker cro- quoted Cochrane to Cochrane, but what he was really doing was quoting himself to Cochrane because Co- Cochrane had quoted him. Exactly. Time travel. <sighs> So is that the paradox? It's it's just the same as the the whole thing with Voyage uh, Home, you know, Star Trek for the Voyage Home. It's like, uh, you know, are you sure we should be giving him the formula to yeah. transparent aluminum? It's like, how do you know this isn't the man who invented this that, stuff? That was honestly the first thing I thought of when uh, JP first started bring, bringing up the Prime Directive. You know, they're changing things. Well, sometimes you kind of have to for the benefit overall. Um, and look at it this way. In the past, who's good at, who am I going to answer to? Who's court-martialing me? There is no Starfleet. Yeah, I can do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> But but a funny thing is, I, I see both points. 
Yeah, they, they, they had to bend the prime directive, but there's certain things they didn't need to do. Like they went full hero worship in some points, like mm-hmm. when uh, when LaForge was talking about what junior high he went to or whatever it was and told them about the statue. Although, oh, of course, of course, LaForge is the one to fucking watch it, right? <laughs> we're, we're talking about the guy that also fell in love with the holocrack representation of the person that built the enterprise d's warp uh core and he fucking botched that as soon as he met her it's like it's like you were saying with michael doran <laughs> you know LaForge does that with everybody he worships too because he was fine up until the point he started talking about the high school and then he starts gushing and you're like oh it's your fault yeah <laughs> you're the one that did this and see it's not even just the time travel and, and the prime graphic it's, it's like how they went about it in, in the one scene there right near the beginning when they're uh, um they're trying to figure out what the extent of the damage is and data and picard are looking at the ship and then lily starts shooting at them from down below what do they do they send the freaking android down to go and deal with the person this is before they even decided that you know throw the prime directive out the window uh, actually i believe that the android volunteered himself <laughs> to do what he did he actually didn't receive any orders to do it he just captain i think i can take care of this situation yeah and picard's just like oh, okay yeah, okay and then he just jumps she's shooting at them obviously she's going to shoot at data it's not going to matter and that's not going to you know have some weird effect then later on they're on the ship and they're trying to to escape and then lily gets woken up and then they go into the ductwork and then lily fucks off because she thinks that they're her captors and later on crusher sees wharf oh wharf please there's somebody from the past she has no idea what's going on please find her you're sending the Klingon to find the person from the past who's never met aliens before. They're they're real big on culture shock. <laughs> I get he's the security captain and he can send other people, but like, really? <laughs> well, well, all, all she says to him is, you know, keep an eye out for her. But that means anybody that's with him, you know, keep an eye out. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that they weren't meaning, Worf, you're the only one. You're sniffer dog. Yeah. Jeffrey too. <laughs> Although I did, I did really like it when she does bump into him and he just looks at her and he's like, are you a Klingon? <laughs> like those <laughs> words mean nothing to her. It's not going to alleviate the shock she's undergoing right now. No, I think well, at, least he didn't, at least he didn't say it with a batleth in her gut. <laughs> I am a Klingon. <laughs> Today is a good day to die, isn't it? Oh, he looks so mad when they teleported him off that ship and this saved him. He was so looking to go down in a blaze of gory well you you accept it as a klingon and at that point he's already in battle rage and klingons are different yeah when they when they get to that high adrenaline point they are they're not a fight or flight people they're a fight or die people well it's for the glory so well it's not just the glory but instinctually over probably how many how many millennia they're space vikings yeah the klingons live breathe that way that's their that's their natural response unlike us so yeah he's pissed that he he lost that moment but at the same time you kind of understand where he was coming from he was he was at the point of acceptance yeah he was (laughs) he was ready to go to stovacor and he was there's no greater honor than what he was about to do. It's like in The Incredibles when that guy was trying to kill himself and then Mr. Incredible k- saved him and hurt him. It's like, now I have to live with a broken neck. Thank you for saving my life, Mr. Incredible. Well, that's no different than the guy having his legs crushed by, you know, Wayne Tower falling upon his legs in Superman versus Batman. 
mm-hmm. Superman Superman technically probably saved that guy's life overall, but uh, to what extent, right? It, it's the backlash. Are, are you really helping or are you hindering? It's really hard to say that, right? You know, you, you, you have a firefighter dive into a fire and pull somebody out who's already got third degree burns on their body and they're, you know, going to look kind of messed up for the rest of their lives and was they, that like a years of or pain. A hindrance? yeah yeah was was that a help or a hindrance it's you can't make that calculation in the moment you're just trying to do your job yeah uh yeah. speaking of that scene though so are there transporters that much advanced much more advanced now that they can transport through shields or did picard just oh, drop this down or did oh but did picard drop the enterprise's shields during the battle with a board cube <laughs> I well, that's gotcha. he did. He actually ordered at one point, you know, lower shields and beam them over. I don't think he says lower did. shields. I think he just says beam over the the survivors because they um, didn't have time to to react. It was like, oh, boom! It exploded. Did we get him? I think so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he actually mentioned it in one of the orders. Now, the second time he did it, he didn't say that, but I think it just goes to show the efficiency of the newest flagship as well. Yeah. Is that they can split second drop those shields and get the lock. <laughs> and I like how Worf was eating a hot dog through that scene or something because uh, he he starts off the scene on his ship and he's got, you know, a scratch on the side of his face Then he comes on board the Enterprise. No scratch, no nothing, completely clean. Then a few minutes later, he's at the console and he's got a little bit of ketchup on his cheek. Oh, I missed that part. <laughs> Inconsistencies. These are the weird things that I notice. Well, it's. That's fine. I mean, th- there was little inconsistencies all throughout the the film. It's never going to be a perfect no. project, and mm-hmm. and especially with that many pieces attached, and literally sometimes attached. Right? <laughs> uh, it's hard. It's hard not to have the the little fuck ups. Like, uh, oh, yeah. you know, if you, if you want a little little one, uh, when Data's laying on the table and he's he's down in engineering, he's laid on the table and he's strapped to it. There's a point where he's looking downward because he's trying to see the queen mm-hmm. and his neck keeps rubbing against the edge of his uniform and you can actually see the the gold makeup coming rubbing off. off onto the collar <laughs> okay yeah i missed that part too yeah but that, that's what i mean it's like small inconsistency is that going to be the the make or break of the movie no, well speaking no. of that table did you notice the shackles on that table that like he's pretty much just holding on like i'm pretty yeah. sure he could just let go and pull his arms out <laughs> he can pull yeah, his hand right out just relax out. your wrist and kind of just slide it sideways you're fine it's a data monkey trap it's either that or unless they were magnetic in some way because we got to remember he's got a metal mm-hmm. under carriage right so if they were magnetic and it just it's it's a electromagnet that drops down he's not going to move yeah <laughs> so that kind of brings us up to what i think is the meat of of this movie is the borg queen slave data and master lacutus if there was any more underlying BDSM oozing sex than in that scene, I don't understand what, because you you literally have this woman get dropped down into her sex doll torso. Have That's a nice hooks come up, Have hooks come up and stretch her skin down. And then she's got that kind of black leather, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my uh, PVC queen get up. And I've I've even got handles on the back of my head because you can grab onto the hoses. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, I'd fuck a hose. Yeah, teenage well, Eric then, felt really awkward at that point in the theater. There was a lot of shifting. right now. Well, and Alice Krieg even even talks about how much she tried to exemplify something somewhat sexual from the Queen, mm-hmm. and it kind of feeds into the whole thing of you know because it's all driven by by the idea of bees, right? So you have a Queen Bee and a Queen Bee emits pheromones so her drones do what they're told 
Well, she kind of took that in a literal sense because, you know, pheromones have to do a sexual drive. The drones are responding to her. And then she's trying to seduce, you know, a very interesting and unique drone in a sense of data. Mm -hmm. So she's got to tempt him with something. And then, of course, she goes with, well, what is the one thing that he hasn't really had? Sensation. Touch. Sense of touch. Yeah. Where did they get that flesh? Well, she literally puts like she literally puts grafted foreskin onto his arm so she can blow on it and he can get a he can get a uh, whatever you call it for an android. I'd say chubby, but that's was it really as good for you as it was for me? Oh yeah, and that line she's like, "Was it good for you?" And he's like, "Ooh," and you're like, "Oh my god!" There was you can tell you've only had sex once before, Data. <laughs> Where else are they going to start grafting that skin? That's what I want to know. I don't want to know. I'm better off not knowing. They probably did. They probably did it. They probably did it. <laughs> yeah. And she's she's connected to the collective. So that's like free movie night for the whole ship right there. That's it's just so weird that they're the Borg and the cyborgs and stuff are gonna be using seduction as one of their tools. I I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But it but it's not. Uh really, because how do you appeal see this is the kind of weird thing. It's interesting that Data almost almost hit the nail on the head when he was talking to her. He was kind of psychologically breaking her down and trying to, you know, get the point across that, you know, trying to achieve protection or uh, uh, perfection is a good sign of a delusional mind, right? It is because this is what I find funny about the Borg. They talk about how they are they are perfection. They're a meld of technology and biology to create perfection, and yet. Anybody that sees the Borg is horrified. There's nothing perfect about what they look like. I mean, even their their little gadget arms aren't really well done. Like, you'd have a multi-tool on that damn thing. Yeah, and but their physical representation is the thing that detracts a lot of people from wanting to be around them in the first place. And so they're never welcome wherever they go. If you see a Borg, doesn't matter what race you are, you're kind of frightened. Mm. But they don't nothing- seem to care, though. Like, they don't need that to take you over. But it, but it's the delusional mind part. You think you're achieving perfection, but you're not. You're actually kind of doing the opposite. And <laughs> what data represents is a form of technological perfection that the Borg are kind of jealous of, if you really think about it. Mm. So her wanting to seduce data, data's already kind of, in a sense, he's more perfect than her. And she wants that. But the thing is, how do you offer a being that obviously has superior elements to it something better? Well, you're going to have to go for something more psychological as opposed to what you could physically offer data. And she does offer something physical to data at the same time. Yeah. But she uses seduction and his emotionship and his naivety with it to her advantage. And it's not just so much what he represents to the Borg. It's also he is what's stopping them from completely taking over the ship from completely uh, completing their mission. Uh, He is locked out, you know, the computer core. They need to get to it. They can't get to it. Uh, The best way to get to it is try to, you know, get him to bend to their will. They can't assimilate him like they say, say Picard or or any other crew member. So they need to approach another tactic. And that's, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, well, you haven't experienced anything or you have limited experience to this stuff. That's a weakness. They are exploiting that weakness to try to get to him. And it even works for what did you say like point something something seconds or something he was tempted for 0.68 seconds which is a long time for an android that's a practically an eternity Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) yeah it's just it's 
hard to kind of come up with a way to get to data because literally through his programming, he could resist her mm-hmm. as long as he needs. She has to up the game. So unlike a lot of the Borg where, oh, well, we'll just assimilate you and you'll fall in line like everybody else. She can't assimilate him. So mm-hmm. that's her first roadblock. And then the second is, is literally he's kind of a technological marvel and yeah. she wants a piece of that. But at the same time, she can't have it easily because, you know, he has lots of things in play that he can use to resist her. And he was, he was up until the point that she started seducing him. And then it became much harder because she was offering things that he couldn't even get from other people because if we if we keep in mind any kind of past event with data in a relationship uh, there's one episode in particular where he tries to have a relationship with another crew member um it doesn't go so well and the fantasy of what you think data could be isn't exactly what he is and he's still missing a lot of those elements that make him an attractive mate and it's kind of surprising because you think about it you think any woman walking around on the ship has a walking a non-stop go machine at their disposal that they could try to date but no one does <laughs> only this one girl who's kind of a little bit weird thinks that having a relationship with an android could be good Fine. because of it's good traits and it's one of those things where you know he's he's always you know support of good doer and all this other stuff you know things that people look for in a mate right but it's it's all just because that's how he is to everyone, not so much because it's a personal affinity to to this person. It's well, th- yes and no because Data also still chooses his friends. Well, yes. So if if he chose her as a friend, he's obviously going to be just as supportive as, as we see him with his other friends of the bridge crew. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard not to like to make a comparison to how Data acts towards people he hasn't chosen as his friends. Um, but of course, it would probably just be a massive amount of indifference, and no one really cares on either side. So it, it's not explorable as a as a thing. Uh, but the thing is, he's had very little contact in terms of any kind of relationship. Uh, the only other person that really kind of affected him was Tasha, and again he was under a circumstance where he had false emotions kind of overlaid on him Mm. um so the only two times that he's had kind of that kind of contact and someone really coming on to him, he has emotions in play that he's not used to dealing with. <laughs> and of course, what does a prepubescent boy, his first time seeing a naked girl do? Jizz in my pants. I'm in love with you. Yes, I'm in love with you, right? Like, so it's no, it's no different for Data when the Borg, you know, gives him sensation and skin and then starts really talking the hard game of, you know, I want you. How do you kind of resist? It's hard. And he was tempted. I'm sure it was hard. No, yeah, but I'm sure, um, I'm sure just like every other part. It, it, it was a good story beat that they picked up from generations. Um, it, they didn't just, you know, end generations. Okay, he got his emotion ship and left that beat alone. It was good that they brought it back up because you can't just get used to all these emotions and, and everything and how to adapt to them and how to control them in a couple years time like and there's gonna be a lot of things that he had never encountered still that uh, i believe i am feeling anxiety captain you should turn off your microchip done sometimes i envy you data hi hi yeah I, i i feel that yeah like and that's the thing right like he's gonna run into an experience and it's gonna be a little like every experience is different right like Mm -hmm. um so there's gonna be different uh variations on on fear uh love emo like uh any emotion like that so when he's lust lust exactly that's exactly it like he he, there's no way i bet you that he had ever been in that situation before and there's no way he knew how to handle it so 
when you become a submissive in a sex dungeon to a uh, obvious fucking mistress, yeah, never been in this situation before. What do I do? Get ready to get pegged, Data. And she, she was mean, too. She turned on his emotion chip and wouldn't let him turn it off. And I love that little bit. She's like, are you afraid, Data? No, I'm not scared. <laughs> well, and she like, just like a five-year-old. She's almost doing classic dominatrix in, in that sense, too. She's really kind of getting established off. her dominance and, and going, you know, please turn it off. And she's like, no, you know, like it's it's <laughs> my call, my decision. You're on my ride, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to go the full extent of this and deal with it. And then and then turning on the charm. And, you know, that's the thing when you were talking earlier about it. Alice Kriege, my goodness, what a great actress. Yeah. Um, and especially for her performance, knowing that like the massive amount of discomfort she went through mm-hmm. wearing the contacts and wearing the suit. And yet she still was pulling off sexy even as a borg and it's really like eric said you know i have a kind of a confused boner (laughs) really like how they made sure the borg were moist because that was something they commented on so that's a really weird transition (laughs) (laughs) she was moist (laughs) that's all it gets from it <laughs> well, like even Picard, like because they're running around on the ship, and the Borg have turned up the temperature because that's what the Borg ships are like. like that was his clue. The, oh, what's the temperature of the ship? Oh no, the Borg are attacking before he even knew anything was going on. Well, I guess his Borg sense was tingling at that point. He but. felt a disturbance in the Force. Yeah. Do you know? What, do you know what's really weird about that is that's also the first time they referenced a Borg. Uh, environment being warm yes. at no point in the series did they ever do that it was never a major concern mm-hmm. but for this movie it became a thing and i i think there's it, it's kind of a flip right i think uh they did it because they wanted to make a sense of uncomfortableness they wanted to add another element of uncomfortable within the movie and mm-hmm. seeing you know the crew sweating and and tired and uncomfortable helped bring up that element of you know they're in the shit this yeah. is not this is not a good place that they're in whatsoever so so it added to the you know like like seeing that one security officer come back up on the bridge you know he's got blood coming from his nose and then he's got sweat all over him and his his tunic is sort of open he's got sweat marks on the outside of his his uniform you know he looks like he's been through hell and it was to add an element of that to to show you know a greater discomfort and stuff they did and great of- yeah it was definitely to help the visual of of the situation they were in. I really hope that they hired a fan to help moisten and mist Picard. Because could you imagine, Eric, if you you had that job, you had like a little mist bottle. It's like, moisturize me. It's kind of like a, kind of like a fluffer on a porn scene. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be sitting there like, just say, make it so. Say it, make it so once. I don't care what you pay me. I'll sit there and squirt that (laughs) bottle over your face. Uh, Phrasing? That's a phrasing. Patrick Stewart, do you want me to moisturize you? Make it so. Um, One thing, though, as a little callback to earlier, uh, when before they go through the time vortex mm-hmm. uh the atmosphere of the earth uh, the, this the uh, the heat and everything they were talking about the temperature on the enterprise kind of reminded me um how it's it completely changes which i thought was weird because it, the, the, their board cubes everything else was sort of uh, like a normal type atmosphere that you would see on say a, a normal federation starship or or normal planet in general like a normal m-class planet well here's now me making the excuses for the movie um it might just be the fact that since the borg cube is one that kind of goes around and picks up the extra life forms they kind of want to keep it at a nominal um like a base class m planet sort of thing because that's where most of their species will come from 
Mm-hmm. So they want to make sure that they're comfortable and they'll, they'll survive the transition. And then once they're more machine than human, then, you know, maybe that's when the, the nitrates are better and uh, being higher up in the yeah, concentration. I, I think it's that. And then just the visual of how the earth has changed. Yeah. Like you wouldn't just be like the Borg go back, assimilate earth. And then you see no change on the surface. It doesn't have that uh, <laughs> gut punch effect, right? Yeah, no, it turns all gray and brown and, and just it looks like if, Global warming and stuff totally got out of hand and pollution racked the planet. So that kind of brings us mostly to the end of the movie. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to touch on? Anything else that that stuck out to you guys uh, from watching this movie again? I liked what the the script was really good. There was a lot of real good uh, one-off comments. Uh, like, say, when Picard uh, gets up to the bridge with Lily. And the first thing he says to Crusher is, here, I found something you lost. Just one little lines like that. It, the movie is filled with them and it's it's hilarious. Like the script was so well done. Uh, it was very quotable. They had a lot of good one-liners in it. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, they did pretty good with the character of Picard uh, showing somebody. It's not like one of those things where you see in a TV show or something where somebody goes through something that you would imagine would have a lasting effect on them and it's never referenced again. This, is, mm-hmm. this was a life-altering encounter that changes Picard to his core that happened in the end of the third season start of fourth season so you're looking at five years after six years after the or before this movie and you can still it's uh, it's still a part of them uh mm-hmm. frakes or sorry um uh Riker says something at the beginning when picard says well the the admiralty wants us to stay out of this because even though they have all the faith in the Enterprise and her crew, they don't have the faith in her captain. Because as someone who's been assimilated prior, it, it's just an it's a bad idea to put him in that situation. And Riker's like, bullshit. No, you're the perfect guy to be in this because you know everything about the Borg or you'd be the perfect guy to face the Borg. Yeah. And this movie proves otherwise. Like when he refuses to, you know, blow up the Enterprise and let the remaining crew members escape, he wants to fight him you know tooth and nail to the last blow yeah and and just seeing him go from the picard everybody knows to this emotional outburst like somebody who's goes from like a very controlled character you see his outburst in the in the the holodeck for like the first real sign that things aren't right and one of my favorite scenes in the movie it was one of my favorite it was a great scene uh i loved it and then to see how detached he gets by sifting through the bored corpse especially after lily says Oh my God, Jean-Luc, he's wearing one of your uniforms. And then he just blurts out who the character was as like just a matter of fact. Hey, yeah, no, it was just the Denson Lynch. Yes. And then he just keeps doing what he's doing and then walks off. <laughs> Just he's, wrist, he's elbow deep in the guy's chest, digging around for stuff. Oh yeah, Anson Lynch. Oh, and it, fuck, oh, there's a part you got to notice the other the other things that Picard is doing. Like uh, maybe I should say more accurately, Patrick Stewart. Um, a testament to really good acting is not just the big things that he does with the character of Picard, like whole entire Captain Ahab sequence, and yeah. you know the big the big speech he gives there. You know we you know we we have them come into our space, we fall back, you know that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. he he has good moments where he gives great dialogue, but it's also the minor subtle things when she's asking about that ensign dead, and he's sitting there pulling out the transporter and starting to you know mod- modify it and stuff. He's literally 
saying the guy's name and giving just the brief rundown of who he knows him as by Starfleet record and not looking at him. He's mm-hmm. not looking at him on purpose because he doesn't want to make that human connection. He mm-hmm. wants to keep him as the enemy in yeah. his head. So as much as he's referencing, this is Ensign Lynch, he doesn't want to look at him. He doesn't want to give him any more reverence than that. He's not even looking at him like he's sorry about what he, what he had to do or anything. He's literally entrenched in the idea, you're the enemy and I have to keep it that way. I have to keep it that way because I have to win. He's disconnected himself from the situation as much as he can to get through it. Because if he lets himself feel or or get into it who knows how he's going to really react that's the thing too is like picard was saved from the borg so why why wouldn't he want to save more of his crew in the same way that he was saved? But, it, think- but it's also it's all it's also probably the fact that uh like you got to think of Picard is a very strong individual, uh, so strong that he usually doesn't let his emotions be the forefront of anything. He doesn't let emotions known even to some of his closest uh, mm-hmm. members of his crew. He keeps a lot of himself in reserve. And I think that's the thing is no matter what, he psychologically pushed past it by strength of will alone. But knowing how they feel, like he says it at one point, it's like if you see one, one of the crew is one of them, don't hesitate to to shoot you'll be doing them a favor trust me mm-hmm. like he he knows how much it took to even bring himself back to a functioning point that probably most people can't yeah it took a whole episode of him playing around in a vineyard to get back to normal no uh, that, 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 that was fairly significant because he was there for about a week and and uh and then there's also just the fact that you know how much time did it take for them to get back to earth he'd probably been doing sessions with deanna it still wasn't registering with him right and it was really his brother that broke through to him but even breaking through to him to help him pass the first big hurdle and getting him back into a forward motion again mm-hmm. doesn't mean that the damage was fully repaired it was just now something he could deal with it just brought it up to the surface for him and something that he would compartmentalize and be able to still function properly because if he was if he was left to how he was before that he would have cracked at some point at some point it would have gotten too much he needed to confront it and deal with it yeah and but it doesn't mean that it wasn't still bothering or affecting him on some level and that's what happens in this movie it shows that it was it shows that it's still there it shows that it will always be a part of picard not that we're not that we're psychologists or anything none of us know what the fuck we're talking no about. i'm just <laughs> rambling <laughs> no, just a bunch of synapses that are misfiring over here yeah, exactly i i think i'm a scientist and i say a bunch of stuff that makes absolutely <laughs> no, no sense to defend a sci-fi film that can't have any of those premises be possible i'm just talking but we know what we're talking about we know what we're talking about because actually, I'm a nerd and I follow this stuff. Because in episode 16 of... Actually, it was episode 18, but thank you. Uh, excuse me, you fucking nerds. <laughs> but no one gives a shit, all right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, at the very end of this, there is the, the cool little scene. And, and just from what we've learned of Cockrum, he's, you know, a drunk and he likes the ladies. And he seems like a really interesting character to get to know. Uh, I, I think they did this on purpose purpose to to sort of be a good representation of the human race in one person so that which is it's interesting for the time because like you said you know it's a representation of that time 1996 yes uh what's interesting is the character of zephyr cochran has actually been depicted uh twice uh within star trek lore by that point and the first time was by glenn corbett back in 1967 in an episode i believe called metamorphosis okay um and in that 
he is kind of a representation of the time because at the time we're talking like Norman Rockwell-esque sort of America at that point. So he's a very clean cut, well-spoken Andy Warhol looking individual and has a very, you know, uh, sure demeanor about himself when Captain Kirk finds him on this planet stranded and they go, wow, you know, you're Zephyrin Cochran, right? And then to have James Cromwell do his depiction is a far cry from what that was. Uh, But again, to represent the human race at that time, we're corrupt enough to want to, you know, I'm just designing this so I can sell it. I can patent it, sell it, be rich, have an island filled with naked women. (laughs) Right? Like that's his full motivation. Um, So it's interesting that they did that because, you know, anything we talk about Star Trek is a reflection of the time. So any character they bring in is a reflection of the time. Any, any, uh, storyline or how the races are interacting are a representation of the time it it, it always has that's been gene roddenberry's um unifying thread about all of his things it's just it's a a good look at how society is society could be i really appreciate that i think that's what's always drawn me to more to star trek than star wars well that's where that's where it got lost on star trek too though is is the problem with you know shows like discovery and stuff like that i don't want to get too much into that but they at a certain point they stopped representing the times they stopped making it a a, a conversation a piece of what was going on in the world in a subtle way they always did it subtly enough that you're still entertained because they're yeah. doing it with their own lore um but they stopped making it a good representation and that's where probably a lot of people felt star trek's kind of lost its way and that's where these movies the the next generation movies uh were kind of the last hurrah for that kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Well, and the reason that I think that that's kind of neat is because he's the one to sort of be the ambassador to the very first actual extraterrestrials with, you know, technology and an interest in the human race to come and, and you know, make contact, the first contact, the whole point of the movie. And I just, I really loved that little bit at the very end where the the, uh, the Vulcan, Solkar? Solkar. He's sitting down at that table in the bar with the music blaring and Cochran walks up, hands him a drink. He takes it, slams it back. Cockrum slams it back, and I'm, I I can just picture how much fun a whole like series or even just one episode of like Great Granddaddy Solcar and the Human. Great Granddaddy Solcar. Oh, no, God. why are we calling him Great Granddaddy Solcar? Everything ties to Spock. Oh yes, yes, that's right. It doesn't matter whether it's it's J.J. Abrams universe or anything. <laughs> it all ties back to Spock. Uh huh. Solcar is the great granddaddy of Spock for anybody who's listening and doesn't know. And Solcar is the Vulcan at the end of the movie that's talking with Cockrum. That's another thing. Uh, another since we're talking about character evolution with Picard. Uh, mm-hmm. I think another one they did was Cochrane. And but you see him at the beginning, drunk, doing things for his own benefit. And then by the end of it, like once once he's in the Phoenix and they hit that warp, you, you can see his eyes open. You can see the revelation. The the, well, the revelation that it's it's everything's a lot more important than money. Everything's like like just like he can he can almost see like he realizes the future of humanity by this one single act. Well, it's in it's in the line that he says. He goes, "Is that it?" And they're like, "Yep, that's Earth." And he goes, "It's so small." Yeah. Oh, exactly. That's that is totally it, and it completely changes him. I mean, yeah. obviously, you still see him you know offering the the vulcans some booze playing some music does his little dance for them but he (laughs) is not the same person that he's nowhere near the same person from the beginning of the movie 
to the end of the movie. It completely no. changed. The beginning, well, he was even, almost self-destructive. Uh, even before the the explosions, I, I get the impression that he was he like it was. This was his last hurrah. This was the last thing that he could think to do to try and break out of the the rut that he was in. And just seeing him grow from the beginning, like you were saying, to the Cockrum we have at the end, who's more more the Cockrum that they idolized. Well, and and that's what's interesting. The change is enough that let's just pretend that it's Cochrane before he does that flight and the Vulcans land on the planet. He wouldn't have been the one to step forward. No. He wouldn't have been the one to go and greet them. And yet he makes that attempt. He does first contact properly. He approaches them. He even tries to do you know, <laughs> a little Vulcan hand uh, gesture to welcome them. He he tries. And the day before, that Zephram Cochrane wouldn't have done that no. at all. No. And yeah, that, that really, it really kind of tied it all together at the end. I'd still love to see their adventure and how they got along and how he showed them Earth. And also the other way around too. I'd, I want to see how that initial response to the Vulcan culture would have been. Well, I think uh, part of that got to play out in Enterprise as well. So, Oh, I never watched that. Well, it's it's you get to see you know the beginnings it's not even the federation at that point it's just starfleet mm. uh for the humans but you get to see a lot Space of that Force. early interaction between humans and vulcans and it's not actually very pleasant uh for either side for their own reasons but yet they keep fighting through it which is which is an interesting thing because you know as much as they make it seem like they dislike each other for their own reasonings uh in that series um it's very interesting why vulcans and humans bridge the gap to each other so the cultural differences are vast the ideal ideology of the two different races are extremely different uh, emotion versus pure logic uh, all that kind of stuff and yet somehow somewhere in the middle they have a great respect for each other's attributes uh and that and that's what plays out in the original series is that exploration between you know kirk uh dr mccoy and uh spock is their admiration for each other and finding you know as much as even mccoy made fun of spock he admired spock he and and the same for spock with mccoy it was just they were on such different dichotomies of personality and then you have captain kirk who's kind of a bridge between the two of them because he can understand both sides and it's an interesting exploration into how they that unifies them so you know enterprise shows the the, the division between them and then the original series showed uh their unification and so you kind of get to see that anyway and it's interesting that they they were able to make all those kind of work even in different time periods of when they were filmed Mm -hmm. so i i'm not sure we'd need to go down that road and have those adventures because i mean if it was zephyrin cochran and sulcar as funny as it would be for maybe like the first half hour i'd probably get bored about three episodes <laughs> oh that's why i'm saying you know like just do one episode where it really focuses on it and you get to have a good little play i don't know i just it, think it would be fun it'd be a pretty funny odd couple situation i think we'll have a laugh track and everything <laughs> i'll watch it now what would you give this out of 10 of for a viewer because you know, usually you do the like, oh, f five out of 10 stars or whatever, but that's boring. What would you guys give this out of 10? Um, I'd probably go with uh, uh, eight out of 10 assimilated crewmen. Ah. Ooh, that's pretty good. I'd give it uh, eight out of 10. If you were any other man, I'd kill you. Where you stand. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's kind of close to mine, too. It's like I'd give it about eight out of 10 Borg implants because resisting this movie's brilliance is futile. Nice. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, with that out of the way, I think we will call it a day for tonight. Thank you guys for sticking around and listening. If you've listened this far, please consider subscribing and liking to our podcast. With that out of the way, Captain Picard, take us out. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. theme song by Dania Vadovos. If you enjoyed your time here today, please make sure to give us a five-star rating and comment wherever podcasts live. If you would like to join the conversation, have some cinematic suggestions, or any other burning questions, please email us at synapticmisfire2020 at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Synaptic Podcast, or find us on Facebook by searching for Synaptic Misfire. Just remember to keep your eyes open for that little green brain.